Well, have you finished all of your shopping? Have you got all the gifts on your list that you need to get? You always got to throw a cute puppy in, right? Have you ever been shopping for someone and you're walking through the store and you just can't find what you really think you should give them? And you finally just kind of give up. You just quit. And you get them a nice pair of gloves or maybe you get them a colorful scarf. Maybe you get them some musk cologne. That's a real label. Isn't that funny? Maybe you get them one of those 75-in-1 handy tools. Everything you can do with just that one little tool. But you know what you do. You walk through the store and you just suddenly tell yourself, you know, it doesn't matter what I give. I'll just get anything. It doesn't matter what kind of gift I give. Jesus of Nazareth never thought that. There was never a moment where Jesus said, you know, it doesn't really matter what I give. Why? Because it did matter what he gave. It mattered a lot. From those first breaths as a baby in the manger, it mattered. From working in his father's carpenter shop, it mattered. From waking up in a raging storm on a boat out on the water, it mattered. And as he began the long walk toward a hill outside of Jerusalem, it mattered. What Jesus gave mattered. There was never any confusion in the mind of Jesus about what he was going to give. There was never any confusion about his gift. He had a list of many, many names, and everybody was going to get the exact same gift. Him. Jesus was going to give himself. He wasn't going to do it as an accident. He wasn't going to do it as an afterthought. Jesus wasn't in the wrong place at the wrong time when he died. There was never a moment that Jesus was walking through the market and went, eh, I can't really find anything. Okay, I'll just give myself. That never happened. You see, it was always the plan. It was always the plan for Jesus to give himself. From the foundations of the world, he was always the gift. 700 years before Jesus was born, God, through the prophet Isaiah, sent an invitation out to the world. An invitation that went something like this. You are cordially invited to the birth of my only begotten son. Please join us in the stable in Bethlehem where he will be born and then follow along with the rest of the story. The rest of the story. Well, if Jesus came into this world in the feeding trough of animals, then what is the rest of his story? If his entrance into this world was, was so strange and so unique, then what's the rest of his story? What are the amazing things that happened after the manger? Well, let's find out. Look with me at Isaiah 53, verse 7. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to slaughter, 
And like a sheep that is silent before its shears, so he did not open his mouth. Thirty-three years after that silent and holy night in Bethlehem, things got loud and unholy around Jesus. That baby that was wrapped in those swaddling clothes, he grew up to be oppressed particularly the religious church leaders of the day, they were oppressive toward Jesus. They were constantly after him. They were trying to be very important in the community. They were trying to turn people away from Jesus. They were trying to make the life of Jesus miserable. In many ways, they were trying as best as they could to take his life. And that was always the plan. It was always the plan for Jesus to be oppressed. 700 years before Jesus was born, Isaiah wrote that Jesus was going to be oppressed, that he was going to be given a hard time. He was also going to be afflicted. He was going to be mocked, and he was going to be ridiculed. Jesus was violently and publicly humiliated. He was shamed in a way that we can't even imagine. Isaiah writes here that he was like a sheared sheep. He was like a lamb that's that's being led out and, and the sheep is going to have its wool taken off. Jesus was put out in public. Almost all of his clothing was stripped from him, maybe all of it. And he was shamed. He was humiliated in front of lots of people out in public. There was nothing private about the affliction of Jesus. He was like a lamb that was going to be sacrificed. He was going to be executed, and he knew that there was not going to be a last-minute release. See, he knew this was going to happen. And how did he respond? How did Jesus respond? Well, Isaiah writes in God's invitation that when the time came for Jesus to give the gift of himself, there was no argument. Jesus did not begin to complain about how he was being treated. He did not go before Pilate and and stand there and defend himself. He didn't even respond to the charges. He didn't confess to them. The scripture says that Jesus willingly embraced and accepted all that was happening around him, that he was silent. He was silent. You see, what makes Christmas glorious is not just that the baby Jesus was born. What makes Christmas glorious is that the baby Jesus grew up to be the man Jesus. And the man Jesus' own purpose gave himself to the world. It was not an accident. It was not an afterthought. Jesus on purpose gave himself. I love how one pastor has put this. Behold this lone figure out in front, fully aware and informed of what awaits him in Jerusalem. See him steadfast in heart, determined, setting the pace for his disciples, striding purposefully forward. Where? To Jerusalem. Why? To die. He will not be deterred. He's full of resolve as he keeps this appointment made in eternity past. Relentlessly, he proceeds to a place 
where he be betrayed and arrested, where he will be accused and condemned, where he will be mocked and spit upon and flogged and ultimately executed. And there's no hesitation, no reluctance in his steps. Though unimaginable suffering is before him, he's walking ahead, leading the way. Practically speaking, when did Jesus start leading the way? In the manger. This is when Jesus started leading the way. Jesus began the process of saving us from our sin underneath those swaddling clothes in that manger. That silent night, that holy night, was a prelude of things to come 33 years later in his life. Because when the hour came for Jesus to give himself, he gave himself with a patient, accepting, silent attitude. He suffered on purpose in silence. But he did not just suffer. Look at verse 8. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living for the transgression of my people, to whom the stroke was due? Jesus was oppressed He was afflicted. He was unfairly judged. He was taken away. He was cut off. His life on this earth was snuffed out. He was crucified and he was executed. In the Old Testament, the Passover lamb was led to be sacrificed for the sins of the people. Jesus became the ultimate and perfect and final, satisfying Passover lamb. For what? For my sins and my trespasses for your sins and for your trespasses it says here that a stroke was due and the stroke should be due to us the just and right stroke of the penalty of sin should fall upon me it should fall upon you but it doesn't it fell on jesus The just and right penalty of our sin fell on Jesus. And when did that stroke begin to fall? When did the penalty of our sin in a very practical way begin to fall on Jesus? In the manger. In the manger. Again, in this this place in Bethlehem, this marvelous story began to unfold. But it wasn't just about a baby in a manger. You know, when I go to the gas station, I'm not there to browse. You know? I'm not there to try some things on and see if there's any new styles or new colors available. I'm pulling up my car at the pump to put gas in it so that my car will go. I have one purpose in being there. I mean, unless I go inside, you know. And then there's snacks, you know, so all my purposes will change if I go inside. But if I stay at the pump, I got one purpose. Jesus of Nazareth did not leave the glories of heaven to come to this earth that he created to browse and hang out. 
No, he was born to be oppressed. He was born to be afflicted. He was born to be unfairly judged. And he was born for the very purpose of being cut off for the penalty of our sin. Jesus was born for the very purpose of receiving the penalty, the stroke that is actually due to me and you for our sin. It was not an accident. It was not an afterthought. Jesus was cut off from the land of the living for the sins of his people. And how did his people then respond? How did they respond to the Messiah? Well, did you notice in that verse the who considered there in the middle? And you notice the the question mark at the very end? Who considered? Isaiah is writing 700 years before these events happen. That when the time comes for the Messiah to be, the people who should be paying attention to him the most were not even going to consider him. They weren't even going to watch. They weren't going to pay attention. They weren't going to think. They weren't going to ponder. They were not going to be stunned and amazed with what the Messiah was doing right now before their eyes. Can we make any connections with that? Let me put it this way. Is it possible for us to go through all the events of Christmas Eve and Christmas Day and not consider Christ? Let me answer for us. Yes. It is very possible. You know why? is busy. There's presents to unwrap. There's presents to put together and find batteries for. We've got to get to grandma's and there's food and there's pie and, and then we've got to get back home. And It can be easy to not consider Christ at Christmas. I know that sounds strange, but, but just think about it. Think about how easy it is for us to blow through Christmas Eve and Christmas Day and not be amazed and stunned with what Jesus has done for us. I'm not trying to be a Scrooge. Go open the presents. Let's have fun. Let's eat the ham. Let's have the sweet potato pie, pecan pie, turkey. I'm getting hungry. What else do we eat on Christmas? Sing the carols, enjoy your family. But if we're going to be believers, we really cannot blow by Christmas and not consider Christ. In fact, we have to do the very opposite. You see, we see things like, oh, come, let us adore him, but that has to be more than a carol that we croon in December. You see, as believers, we need to consistently be considering Christ. We need to be consistently coming and adoring Christ. It needs to be a part of every day, not just Christmas Eve and Christmas Day. There's much for us to adore in Jesus Christ. The scene here that Isaiah is portraying is very interesting. See, during the time that Isaiah lived, there were very religious, nice, church-going folks who refused to consider the Messiah. 
They refused to consider all the truth about the Messiah that they were given. And in the time of Jesus, when he lived, there were good church-going people that refused to consider Christ. They refused to consider the truth about the Messiah, and the Messiah lived there and walked there and, and talked there and died there, right there where they lived. In other words, at least those two generations and all the generations before, they did not take any of this to heart. And guess what? There's not a whole lot different in the generation since. It is somewhat easy, not just for lost people, but for religious people, to not take these things to heart. Let's don't do that. On Christmas Eve and on Christmas Day and, and all the other days of the year, let us do everything that we can to consider Christ, to think about Christ, to ponder the truth about Jesus, to come to Jesus, to worship Jesus, to adore Jesus, because He is worthy of all of this and more, not just on Christmas, but all year long. We need to adore Jesus Christ. We need to worship Jesus Christ all the days of the year. Look what Isaiah says next. His grave was assigned with wicked men, yet he was with a rich man in his death. Because he had done no violence, nor was there any deceit in his mouth. The innocent Messiah died with wicked men. Jesus had done no violence. Jesus had not been oppressive. Jesus had not afflicted anyone. Jesus had not lied. He was not deceptive in any way. In fact, he was the opposite. He always told the truth. Jesus was always telling the truth about his father. But he died beside and around and because of wicked, rebellious human beings. Rebellious human beings, just like me and just like you. The Apostle Paul, probably the, the most devoted follower of Jesus who ever lived on this earth, he said when it came to being a sinful, rebellious human being, he was at the top of the list. He was the chief. But in the middle of this wickedness, in the middle of this rebellion, in the middle of this sin, don't miss this very strange picture of hope. You see, for all practical purposes... Jesus should have been cast off to the side after he died, just like a common criminal. However, a, a common criminal would be buried or disposed of, whatever they would do to get rid of that body, that's what should have happened to Jesus. But because of the intensity of the love and grace of God the Father for God the Son, God stirred the heart of a wealthy man named Joseph to go and risk his reputation. Maybe risk his freedom. Maybe even risk his life by not only associating with Jesus, but asking for his body. And then God stirred the heart of Pilate to give Joseph the body of Jesus. And then the body of Jesus was taken, and it was prepared for burial, and it was put in Joseph's own personal tomb. Now, you may be thinking, all right, what does a tomb have to do with hope? 
I'm not making the connection here. What does a man dying and a, a man being prepared for burial and a man being put in a tomb, how in the world can I find any hope in that? Well, here's the hope. You see, Jesus didn't stay in the manger. He left the manger. And Jesus, he didn't stay in the carpenter shop. He left the shop. And Jesus didn't stay in the temple. He left the temple. And Jesus did not stay on the cross. Jesus left the cross. And Jesus did not stay in the tomb. He left the tomb. He is no longer there. And because of that rich man's empty tomb, we can have great, everlasting, and unending hope. You see, the hope of that empty tomb means that we do not have to die in our sin and our rebellion. We do not have to be separated from God forever and ever and ever. No, what the Scripture tells us is that salvation in Jesus Christ means that when Christmas joy and Christmas fun and Christmas presents are over, that our joy and our fun and our happiness and our satisfaction and our peace do not have to be gone. You see, there is life on December 26 in Jesus. And there's life on March 26 in Jesus. And there's life in June 26 in Jesus. And there's life after death with Jesus. There is great hope in Jesus. Jesus Christ died next to two criminals. But he died the king. And he rose the king. And he's still the king. And not just any king, but he is the king of all kings. Benjamin Hanby said it this way in his song. Who is he in yonder stall at whose feet the shepherds fall? Who is he in deep distress fasting in the wilderness? Who is he that from the grave comes to heal and help and save? Who is he that from his throne rules through all the world alone? Tis the Lord. A wondrous story. Tis the Lord, the King of glory. At his feet we humbly fall. Crown him. Crown him. Lord of all. This is not just a baby. This is not just a carpenter. This is not just a savior. This is the king. He is the Messiah forever and ever and ever. Oh, come, let us adore him. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we ask for help. In the next few days, we will be running lots of different places, trying to accomplish some last-minute things, trying to show love toward others, and that's great. But we do ask that starting right now in this moment, that the Holy Spirit would grab our hearts, and that whatever our normal traditions are at Christmas, would you help us to flip them over to make sure that we consider you 
to make sure that we don't go through the motions this week. To make sure that our wives and our husbands and our children and our grandchildren and our grandparents, that our families, that complete strangers know that you aren't just a baby, but you are our Savior, our Lord, and our King. Help us to worship and adore you. For these things are for your glory. All of it. We pray these things in your name. Amen.